Here we are with Gary Lamming, formerly of Cotsparrow, Little Boosters, uh, Bermondsey Joy Riders, and a host of other bands. He's also known as an actor. Hello, Gary. Right, Roy, how's it going, mate? Yeah, not too bad. It's been a while. Yeah. But I like your hair there, Lord. It suits you. Thank you. You know, I, I do need a cut scene, mind you, but yeah. uh, thanks. Uh, just in the interview, generally when I start an interview, I go back to the beginning. Sure. So, uh, where were you raised? Uh, East London. Um, I was born in uh, Forest Gate, Mother's Hospital. Um, but I spent a lot of time um, with me. With my dad, really, um, in the in the docks um, after school, I was uh, drifting from uh, job to job, not really um, settling down into anything um, to to um, regular. And uh, so, my dad started to take me to work with him, and uh, I got um, I got a job as a ship's messenger, which was great because uh, what I had to do was I had to uh, get the ship's manifest. From the captain of the ship, which uh, you know, for, for a young lad, it's quite quite an interesting, exciting thing. Um, I then had to take the manifest to a uh, office in Bermondsey to have it all checked out, and they had to sign and stamp it because this was in the days before computers and mobile phones, so everything was paper, yeah. rubber stamps, pens, and, and and getting on the on the tube with the bus. Um, that was a great period of my life, and um, I think that's when I started to notice uh, all these different characters that worked in the docks. And there were some characters as well. There were some really funny blokes, very humorous, very quick-witted, and uh, there were some real rogues, and some were even quite dangerous. But for the most part, a, a great bunch of geezers um, doing a job. But they like doing, having fun, and uh, yeah, I learned a lot by observing those people. So you you were born in the east end, east east end of London. I call it, I call it East London. East London, because to me, the, I mean, there'll be people that disagree with this. Some people might agree with it, but I consider the East End to be Tower Hamlets. Okay, yeah, that's like Bedford Green, Bow, Poplar, Wapping, Whitechapel. That to me is the true East End. And I've lived in those areas, but I was born in what I consider to be East London, which is Forest Gate and Stratford and areas like that, within the London Borough of Newham. So there's the London Borough of Tower Hamlets and in the London Borough of Newham. So that, that's how I've, I'm not saying I'm right, but that's, that's how I've always sort of got in my mind. The point that I was going to raise is you, you were born in East London. Yeah. But you support Millwall? Well, here's an interesting thing. All my mum's side of the family are West Ham fans. All my dad's side of the family, who from Poplar and just off the Isle of Dogs and Bobby, yeah. they all supported Millwall. And there was a funny, funny story that I, I, I found out. Um, after my dad had died, um, we had a, a bit of a family get together and you know discuss things like funeral arrangements and stuff like that. And when my dad was calling my mum, my dad's the oldest of, of several brothers, by the way. When my uh, when my dad was calling my mum, uh, he used to 
get one done. He was a pretty dapper looking geezer, my dad, you know, he was uh, very stylish um, when he went out. And my uncle Tommy told me this story that one day he was uh, getting ready to go out and uh, the younger brothers were like all sort of uh, having a little bit of a sort of meditator about wearing all these all these nanny gear. Where are you going? I'm going out, says me dad. And uh, one of the brothers went, you're not going to go and see that posh bird from West Ham, are you? <laughs> because in those days, um, like the area of Poplar and Wapi, where my dad's family are from, was a very, very um, uh, working class area. I mean, so, so was so was where my mum was from. But the, from where my mum was from, and that was Plash, an area called Plashic Grove, that was considered quite a bit more upmarket, much more upmarket than the Wappy or Pop Rodeo or the dogs, that's for sure. Yeah. So I didn't I didn't find that out until we dad died and um, you know, brought a little bit of life re like relief under the circumstances. Yeah. So that's my story. Um I'm, I'm probably one of the few Millwall fans who, do, who don't hate West Ham from good passion. And in fact there was always a lot of uh, friendly banter in our family regarding the situation with my mum's side of the family. Or being West Ham fans and deaths, or being Millwall fans, we we always had, had, had a good banter about it. You know? Yeah, so that's that's where that's at. When, when when did you pick up the guitar then for the first time? What what, what was your attraction? I wanted to uh, be famous, you know, and uh, I thought it might help me, you know, get girlfriends and stuff like that, and maybe I could be rich at the same time and have you know nice cars. I didn't really um, get into the understanding of it on an artistic level until um, a few years later. But uh, I suppose um, my early, earliest memory of um, being influenced uh, in a way that wanted to maybe play guitar was uh, watching the Rolling Stones doing Little Red Rooster, in particular Brian Jones doing the slide guitar. Um, I, I love that sound, so spontaneously entertaining to me. And um, from that, uh, there's a kid at school, um, he said to me, well, that slide guitar that that Brian Jones is doing, you know where they, they get that from, do you? I said, oh, no, I have no idea. And he said, well, it's all down to black blues players. They came up with that. And I suppose... Um, I'm probably not the only one to discover the blues via Rolling Stones, but it was a very educational. I, I, I learned more more about uh, black culture and the um, and America from being a Rolling Stones fan than I ever did at school. You know, yeah. because once it, it's like one thing leads on to another, so you find out about the black blues players uh, playing side guitar, and then I found out that. The, the, one of the reasons why slide guitar was invented is because they didn't have enough money. They didn't earn enough money to buy their own guitar, so they would make the guitar. And consequently, the action, the strings from the neck was too high to hold the string down on the fret. So somehow they had to get around that, and somebody came up with the idea of putting a bottle across it. And there, there's, there, there's your bottle neck moves that comes into existence. So when did you get your first guitar then? Oh, um, yeah, it must have been about, um, must have been about 14, but I didn't get very far with it. No. No. Uh, it, you know, but it, I, I had an initial sort of two-week sort of enthusiastic um, 
passion with it, jumped about and looking in the mirror, and I couldn't get anywhere with it whatsoever. And um, it wasn't until we moved away from Eastland. Uh, okay, so getting back to my dad, um, he had a he had a, an accident in the docks. Um, uh, quite a, a serious. He recovered from that, but um, kind of freaked me mum out. And uh, what happened was around about that time as well as they were gradually thinking about closing the docks down. Um, and uh, and the way they were doing that was they were phasing all, all the um, all, all the industry of the docks out towards Tilbury or down to Tilbury. They were making everything in, in the containers yeah. rather than having dockers load it off of ships. Yeah, they were coming. The goods were coming in from overseas on containers. So you just got like a crane to jump that up, put that on there, that, that, that grab the container. Yeah. Whereas before, um, that was all, all the goods were in, in loose kind of um, yeah. crates and stuff like that. And in order to get rid of the doctors out of the London docks, um, the Royals and um, uh, Surrey docks, as it was then, rather than Surrey Keys, um, was to um, offer them severance pay. They'd work out how many uh, years um, uh, a bloke had got left working in the docks and they'd um, given the money to, you know, go and find another job elsewhere. And this kind of coincided around about the time my dad had this accident. I mean, mum, sorry, she was a bit freaked out now that my dad had had this accident. He was in hospital for, for quite a while, actually. And uh, so he did go to work back in the docks for a little while, but then sometime shortly after that, took his severance money. And uh, we moved that to uh, the London Borough of Havering, okay, yeah. an area called Hornchurch. Now there, um, I met some other lads who were playing guitar and were quite advanced on it. And uh, I was very impressed with their ability to play guitar. And um, Another mate of mine who was interested in learning to play guitar, a complete beginner like myself, yeah. he, um, he struck up a deal with one of these uh, older lads, whereby for 50 pence a week, you, you could have a guitar lesson around yeah. his house. Yeah. And so that's how I started to get um, the guitar together. Um, and that guy, that guy's name would go those guitar lessons, fantastic guitarist actually, a guy called Tony Griffith. And uh, he he really had some great equipment, like you know he had a Gibson SG for a start, you know real Gibson, and he had a Marshall stack, and he was a great player yeah. and a, a nice lad and a, and quite a good teacher as well. So yeah. uh, I started to make um, you know some notable progress now with with the guitar. So um, um, and as I say, uh, it it never left me that initial thing that I saw with Brian Jones playing the slide guitar. Yeah. Tony Griffith didn't teach me the slide guitar because then this mysterious open tuning um, that the Stones and Ry Cuda and the Black Blues players were using. Um, you know, once again, just to remind everybody, this was before the internet, you know, yeah. you couldn't get research and uh, it wasn't until many, many years later um, you know, 20 odd years later, that um, 
it was Daryl Bath actually, who um, a great guitarist who fortunately, unfortunately passed away um, just recently. He said, "Well, the thing is, Gary, you know they're using open tuning." I said, "Yeah, yeah what, what, what is that?" He said, "He went, well, this is what you do. You sing, you know, you, you drop the bass E, uh, drop the bass E string down to a D. You drop the A string, the next string down to a G." You leave the other strings as they are until you get to the top E, and you also drop that top E, that, that top E down to, yeah. to a D. And then when you strum that, you've got like an open G7 chord, and that's the, that's the chord, um, that's the tuning whereby you get those um, open sus chords. Yeah, and uh, it's very good for slide guitar because as you, as you're picking out a note with 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 the with the uh, bottleneck yeah. or the slide. You, you've got a resonance of the chord uh, going on. It sort of it, it, it ghosts the um, because it's in in a, in a chord. Yeah. As you pick out a single note, you get this ghostly sort of suggestion of something else going on around it. And it's, it's it's very musical. Yeah, yeah. So when did so you you started taking lessons? Yeah, with Tony Griffith. Yeah, and. Um, it was very beneficial to me. He um, he, he showed me how to play uh, rock and roll colour calls and the other guitarist I really liked was Chuck Berry. Yeah. I love Chuck Berry. Yeah. Uh, and that again, that again was probably an influence from, yeah. from the Rolling Stones. And yeah. uh, I remember really struggling to learn how to play uh, the Chuck Berry rock and roll calls, which you you know looks like something out of a Tudor yeah. uh, torture chamber, like you know, stretch your hand right up there, <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah. So when did you join or form your first band? How many well, years later? Oh, I was at I was at school. Uh, I would have been about I don't know fifteen and a half now, sixteen, and it was like a it was like a hodgepodge of sort of uh, covers, um, half finished originals and original half finished originals that would then become covers and vice versa. Uh, you know, that was just a school band yeah. with. Uh, Different members coming coming and going, um, and uh, I suppose the first serious band that I was in was was Janus, yeah. which then became Cold Sparrow. I joined Janus in '74. Uh, I'm not listed on their official uh, um, blurb that I was in Janus, but I I, I was um, I was the last member to join. But somebody has to be the last member to join. But I, I was there because. Um, we were doing gigs at the Dagenham Roundhouse before Cox Sparrow. With Cox Sparrow, yeah. they were playing the Dagenham Roundhouse, okay. uh, which was a great gig, and that's yeah. when they were called Janus. And we supported, um, well, uh, ten years after Alvin Lee, um, and we we uh, supported the first Motorhead with Larry Wallace of the Pink Fairies okay. on, on guitar. For, what year was that then? Yeah, this is all. This has been around us about 74. Okay. So, you know. so that to me was like very exciting that, um, to be playing in a band that was playing at such a, a credible gig. You know, the, the Dagenham Roundhouse was really a, um, a, a, you know, a gig with a lot of credibility and it was, it was difficult to get a gig there. Yeah. Um, I think Colin, the lead singer, might have had some kind of connection with um, one of the booking agents. Um, yeah, we've done quite a few gigs down there. Um, 
and I always went to see bands play there in the first place. So when I went from you know just being a punter that would go down, it was a Saturday night gig. I went from being being a punter uh, watching bands down there on a Saturday night, and you know, I was at an age when you know seeing the support band was very vital as well. That whole, it was that whole evening, you know. I just weren't turning up to see the main, but, and then all of a sudden, I'm playing for a band that can actually do gigs there. So it was like very exciting for me. Yeah. How would you describe the sound of Janus? Um, that's um, something that I was immediately uh, impressive. They did have a a sound. Most certainly. They didn't sound like all the other bands that were doing um, covers. They didn't sound like a band that were trying to sound like anybody else. They they did have their own their own sound. Um, they didn't have any uh, real uh, songs at that time. It was mainly covers. It was one or two um, uh, originals. It was a song called Bad Booze, I remember, which I think that became a little bit disputed that uh, I think another band claimed that song. Uh, but that's how it was in them days, you know, the bands would sort of like, you know, you'd go and see a, a band and you might be influenced enough to sort of go, oh, that's nice, I think I'll, I'll, I'll play that as well. Like, uh, so there was one called Bad Booze, I remember. Um, and I think, I think, I think Mickey the guitarist might have had a song called uh, Midnight Lady or something like that. As was good fun, man, James was, was good. Um, Good experience, yeah. So when when did the the, the change the Cox power happen? And yeah, what, well, what was the reason? That well, that was that was me. That was me being pushy, and um, I was pushy, and uh, I, I didn't have a lot of decorum in those days, and I didn't have um, uh, you know a grateful way about doing things, and uh, you know uh, I, I was. I was now uh, quite influenced by bands like the MC5 and um, the New York Dolls and the Stooges. And I, I had this kind of inclination that if we could present ourselves as a anti-music anti, anti band, you know, a band that weren't into long guitar solos and being, you know, Technically brilliant, and I was always banging on about you know it's got to be like a uh, you know it's got to be like a demonstrative street sound to appeal to younger kids of like fifteen to sixteen, yeah. not not twenty three year old sort of art school students. And in some ways I was right, um, but in some ways, in a lot of ways, I, I think I pushed that a little bit too hard, and I think it sort of uh, may have upset. A few people in the band. Um, I could have gone. I could have gone, gone along with it in a, a much more gen, general way. I think. Yeah. So it's when, when was this? When did Coxpower? When did Janus become Coxpower? I think it was at the end of '75. Um, and I can't. Well, Malcolm McLaren came down to see us. Yeah. How did that happen? Um, I think there might have been. Uh, a few members in the band, all trying to get people to come down and see us. And uh, I remember I wrote a letter and I said, imagine a band that's across between the Who and the Bay City Rollers. 
this could be a very marketable thing for anybody that knows how to the market stuff. And you know, I was sending letters out like that. Um, uh, we we didn't say anything like that across between the who or the Bay City Rollers. But in my mind, that's the way I was hoping the band might might go. Um, and then Malcolm McLaren came down to see us rehearse in a pub in East London. Um, I think it was called the Rodins. Um, there was a, a little space on top of the um, uh, on on top of the pub, which we would hire um, for a small amount of money once a week. And uh, Malcolm came all the way down from the King's Road, and uh, I'll never for, I'll never forget it because um, I mean. East London weren't the trendy sort of hip area in those days that it's now become. Yeah. You know, uh, this was a backstreet East London boozer full of um, builders, lorry drivers, and bricklayers, you know. And all of a sudden, Malcolm McLaren comes tottering in through the doors on these ridiculously high platform girls' boots, skin-tight leather trousers, little bolero type of jacket and a little shoulder bag. And uh, as I see him walk through the door, I couldn't help but look at everybody's expression around around the pub. You know, there was one geezer in the corner eating a steak and kidney pie, and he was just frozen in suspense. You know, I thought I thought he was going to stop eat, eating the eating the pie and go and take a bite, you know, bite Malcolm's head off like that. But Malcolm was very cool. Um, uh, my instincts was like, let's get Malcolm upstairs to hear some music. Let's get out of this potentially volatile situation. And I said to Malcolm, um, you know, thanks very much for coming down. Do you want Do you want to come up and um, listen to some music? And he just looked around at everybody. You know, in a very brazen and nonchalant way. He went, no, he said, I'm quite enjoying the ambience down here. And I thought, oh, crikey, you know, he's really is a, you know, a provocative geezer. Yeah. And, you know, good luck to him. But nothing ever came of that? Um, well, something did come of it, really, because um, when he came upstairs to listen to the band, uh, what he said uh, to me was, you look like a lad off the football terraces, you should work on that. And um, I did. Uh, so really and truly, um, something did come of it. Uh, and that football terrace thing that Malcolm suggested I should work on, I then, you know, started to push that, push that within, within the band as, as well, to, to be a, an, an image, um, which, which worked. Because the um, the band then began to uh, adopt that that look, which um, I think was um, uh, I think it was a good uh, alternative to the um, to the sort of more art school uh, safety pinned torn safety pinned sort of uniform, yeah. which everybody was now using. Um, I think I think that it, an initial uh, idea with the torn clothes, putting them back together with the safety pins. I, I you know, I thought that was a a, a very a very clever um, artistic um, statement, which like everything else, then just got 
done to bits with everybody doing it, and it then did become uh, a uniform. But initially, uh, you know, I, I thought it was a very individualistic statement, really. So with Cotsbury, you started writing your own songs. Uh, I don't, well, I'd had a couple already, which yeah. weren't in the weren't in the set. Uh, there was Running Riot, yeah. um, which I wrote the uh, riff for. I uh, the opening riff. I wrote the um, the chorus, um, and Steve Burgess filled in the verses. The, the verses are Steve Burgess's lyrics. Yeah. The chorus is mine, and most of the music is mine. But Steve Burgess definitely wrote the um, the verse of that one. He, he, he kind of finished the song off. Yeah. And we um, we went along uh, along those lines um, for much of the rest of the writing, whereby I would I'd get the song, uh, the, the musical structure of the song, I'd come up with uh, the chorus, something like that. Yeah. Um, not always, uh, but for the most part, that, that was the format. And then, then Steve Burgess would, would fill in the, fill in the, the verses. You, you, you didn't go with Malcolm, but you did go with another manager from memory, or an agent in Soho. Oh, you're talking about Cliff Cooper? Yeah. Uh, well, Cliff Cooper was um, a very interesting geezer uh, because he was the inventor of the orange music industry. So he was very established. He had shops in, um, in Compton Street, Old Compton Street. Um, he had shops in um, Denmark Street. And... Um, his story is quite interesting because the reason that he, he, he started the orange music industry is because martial amplification wouldn't supply him um, amplification in his shops. His, his shops were, you know, new, uh, with, with no kind of track record. Yeah. And I think at that time, um, you know, Big brands like um, like Marshall, they were very particular about where their stuff was being sold, sold where yeah. it was would be seen to be sold, and, and uh, I remember talking to Cliff about that, and uh, he, he he told me that they um they wouldn't they wouldn't give him no amplifiers to sell sell in his shop, so he said, well, I'll right, well, well, invent my own amplifier then, and he came up with the idea of orange, and um, what Cliff did which I think was very clever, is he made sure that all the emerging new bands, as well as the established bands, were seen to be using Orange. Yeah. You know? uh, and he also had a recording studio in the basement of um, Orange, one of the Orange shops, uh, which was the Compton Street shop. In the basement there, he, he had a uh, a really good studio, um, and so we done we done some um, we done some demos down there for Cliff. Um, now actually, uh, Colin went in there first. Colin was offered to sing on a song that was already written by some other songwriters. It was called Rollerball. Okay. And it was uh, it was a song about a film. Yeah. Rollerball, and uh, Cliff was looking for a singer. I think it was Steve Burgess that made contact with uh, Cliff Cooper. Originally, and uh, I think Cliff said to uh, Steve, oh, "What's your singer like? Is he? Could, he got a powerful voice." And of course, Steve said, 
yeah, of course he has. He would not say otherwise. He's a, yeah. If you bring it down here, I've got, got a song that I might want him to sing. And that was the beginning of our relationship with, with Cliff Cooper. Uh, he done all right for us in some ways. I think um, I don't think he totally understood the band, but then again, at that time, I don't think many people did. But he, well, one thing that he did, a couple of things that he did that I was, you know, always very pleased with. One, he got us on Decker, yeah, which was great for me because I was a Rolling Stones fan, you know. Yeah. And uh, my favourite era of the Stones was the Brian Jones era, which is when. They were on Decker, so that, that was that was great for me. Uh, I was really pleased with that. And then he got us on tour with the Small Faces, Perfect. which I think um, all the bands were very very pleased with. Yeah. And um, the Small Faces were really re really nice to us, you know. Straight away they were you know friendly with us. I think Kenny Jones gave. Um, Gave Steve Bruce, the drummer, a pedal, if I remember rightly. And okay. I think uh, Kenny uh, saw what Steve was using. He's going, yeah, listen, man, take take that. You know, you're not going to you're not going to get anything out of that. I think take this. So that was very kind. Uh, Ian McLagan, um, he was a uh, he was very kind to me. Um, the first time I saw Ian McLagan was um, at the gig what we opened up with um, on the first the first night I was in the, the, in Sheffield. And he, he, as he went to walk past me, he went, oh, I said, who does your hair? I went, uh, yes, uh, all right, and it's, he went, it's one of the best small faces haircuts I've ever seen. <laughs> I said, oh, thanks, and that's a real compliment coming to you. He said, well, who does it? And I said, my girlfriend. He went, well, that's funny. He said, my girlfriend does my hair. I said, oh, well, there you go. We've got girlfriends who know how to do small faces haircuts. And, and then as he went to the shape the angle, which girlfriend's name went, Kim, he went, that's my girlfriend's name as well. So we kind of sort of, we, we hit it off a little bit, yeah. really, in, at, at, on the very first day, day of the gig night, you know. So many dates did we do with small it weren't, a, it weren't a very long tour. I think it was only about um, 10 or 12 dates, but in very good venues. Uh, and the London venue was, um, was, was the old Rainbow. Okay, yeah. The Finsbury Park. Yeah. So did, did you think Decker got behind the band? What, for that? For, for, for the three singles, wasn't it, or two singles and an album? I think they've done as I think they've done that as good as they could have done under the circumstances. So I don't think anybody, uh, uh, you know, we're talking about 76, 77, 78, yeah. and, the, uh, and, you know, the punk rock thing then, I think it caught a lot of people on the hop. And those that it didn't care, catch on the hop weren't that interested or they didn't understand it or they didn't know how to market it and as and as pleased as i was to be on decker because of the you know the past connection with rolling stones um i think they i think they had a good go at it decker but um they, they weren't exactly cutting edge for that particular music at, yeah. at, at that time and uh, there was a, there was a couple of good lads there that, that, that tried really hard to do it but um, maybe they didn't quite understand where the band was at. Yeah. Yeah, but um, great, um, great producer that they put us with, though. That's one thing that Decker did do that was very good. Um, and uh, I think maybe Cliff might have had some uh, dealings into that as well. There was a guy there called Nick Tolber. Okay. He was a house producer. You might have heard his name. He'd done the first Thin Lizzy track. Um, in the jar and then the rock, rocker 
Well, it might have been the Rockefellers, but he was he, he was a producer in the full sense of the word. He he knew he knew how to produce. Yeah. He weren't there just moving a few sort of faders up and down and twisting a few sort of knobs on the desk. Yeah. He would make some very good suggestions. You know, leave that out there. Don't bring that in yet. Bring that in there because that will give that more impact and it will lift the song at the same time. You know, so he. He, he was an experienced producer and he was very um, very part and parcel of that initial Cotsboro sound when I was in the band, you know. Yeah. Did you, did you think, were Cotsboro ever a punk band or were they a rock band? Um, I would say that the general feeling and thought about Cox Barrels, no, they were never a punk band. But what we did have, um, which could never be disputed, was a real um, a real energy that was certainly punk. Um, maybe maybe uh, some of the playing at that time Maybe looked upon as a little bit too sophisticated to be considered punk. But what one thing that can't be denied was the energy. <laughs> yeah, I was just about to say that, that, that when I was in the band, I mean, um, it, it it was it was mental. I mean, it was like that, crikey, you know. I look back on it now, think to myself, I was like, um, you know, really, really was something that we were doing there, like, you know. Yeah, you, you you seem to play a lot of gigs. Seven, seven, seventy-eight. Was that right? Do you make a living out of it? No, didn't make a living out of it, but we did make, I mean, we, you know, we, the gigs that we were getting, um, they were, they were, um, they were attained, I think, via, um, I think Steve Burgess was always trying to find gigs. I was always trying to find gigs. I know Colin Eddie's, um, I believe that Colin Eddie's connection at, um, at the Umbra Club, uh, and um, we we tried hard. We really tried hard to sort to um, to get somewhere, but um, we was never really kind of in vogue or fashionable. Um, I, I don't think people um, gave us uh, enough credibility at that time for what we were trying to do. Yeah, but you had a following. Oh well, the, we um, we we met this um, really. Uh, a uh, smashing bunch of geezers that called themselves the Poplar Boys, and they were from the East End. They were from from Temple Poplar. Yeah. They they uh, they mainly came from um, an estate in a uh, council estate in in Carl Street round there, and um, they saw um, we there was an article on us. We we had an article. Uh, I think it was a. A full page of the Wiley in the East London Advertiser, and that was a paper for for the London Borough. Yeah, by Town Ramblings. Um, there have been other press articles in other papers as well, but that's where the Partner Boys picked up on us. Now the Partner Boys were a bit younger than us, and they certainly knew their punk music. Okay. They they were out all the time, every night. Like the gigs, and to me, it was um, it wasn't just that we had um, uh, our own particular 
bunch of geezers that were associating themselves with the band. Um, it was it was like a fairly solid endorsement in my book yeah. that those lads felt that yeah we 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 had something to say and we was doing something right uh, because they saw uh, Terry Hayes, Terry Burke, um, Toshel, um, Song. They certainly knew their, their punk rock. And for them to come to our gigs, as I say, that was an endorsement in my books. Yeah. Mm. Who were some of the punk bands you played with? Oh, um, well, that, uh, we, we've done quite a few gigs at the Roxy. Yeah. Um, who have we played with? Um, played with Chelsea, uh, 999. Um, oh, we played... Um, uh, with the Cortinas, I think yep. that was another gig. Uh, oh, we played uh, with the Jam. Uh, that was now when the Jam were quite big, though. Yeah, they, you know, they 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 edit records now. Um, who else? I'm sure, there's some others, but I, c- I can't think at the moment. When did Decca drop you, or did they just not renew the contract? I think they just did not renew the contract. Yeah. Um, we'd, we'd done the two singles, um, uh, Running Right and uh, We Love You. Yeah. Uh, I'm very, very proud of uh, We Love You because, um, as one journalist said, who in their right mind would want to take a song like We Love You, which is practically uncoverable, and do do this to it. it, it I, I, I always, uh, I was always quite proud of that statement because, yeah, the, the song is a, a very loose kind of spacey song that that drifts in and out of structure. Yeah. And my thinking behind it was, um, mm, I wonder how Slade might play that song. They were going to cover it. I'm going to, I'm going to do, I'm going to do Slade playing We Love You. Yeah. And. Um, I, I showed it to the band, and um, it was it was a bit difficult to get it to sound how I envisaged it in, in my in my mind, until Cliff Cooper came past the studio. He went, "That sounds really good. What you need to do is you need to repeat that bit there and then go that bit." And he just said that in passing, and so we tried that, and then suddenly the things started to work. Yeah. So when was it? When when was that? Seventy eight, seventy nine. I can't remember. It might. It was you know. It was after Running Riot. So I, I mean, I, yeah. I can't think. Seventy eight. The, al- the album came out, didn't it? Well, the, the the thing about the album, none of us were aware of the album. Yeah. Was it Spain or was it France? France? Well, one of the popular boys has been on holiday. Yeah. <laughs> and we used to we used to meet um we used to meet in the in one of the pubs we used to go in was the uh, was the old Globe. But yeah. Uh, in Stepney, and um, I can't remember who, who had the album under his arm, and uh, I think Steve, Steve Bruce was there, and he went, have you seen this? And I went, oh, I thought it was, what I thought one of, I thought one of the popular boys had mocked up an album cover, and I looked at it, and uh, I looked at um, the popular boys and I looked at Steve and went, that's been released in Spain. I think it was Steve that was it. He said, that's been released in Spain. He said, that's, that's, all, our, that's all our songs. 
and we never knew anything about it. Um, and apparently it was meant to be quite a, quite a, 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 a selling album out there. So. <laughs> yeah. So was that was that? Do you think that was when Decca did renew the contract? Do Do you think that was when Cops Power went on the slide? Um, at some point, the band just stopped existing. Right. There was no sort of like, well, that's it. We can't play this no further. See you later. Yeah. That that didn't really happen. I think I think it just sort of ceased. Yeah. Just stopped. Um. And then you came out with Little Roosters with two of the band members? Two of the band members did come into the Little Roosters, but not initially. What happened was I formed the Little Roosters and I now was um, in, in, indulging my, my passion for um, that Stonesy Faces, New York Dolls kind of thing. Yeah. Um, the drummer left, he went and joined one of Glenn Matlock's bands. The no. Spectres. That was yeah. I think you're right. Yeah, because yeah, I, I saw them in 1980 yeah. supporting the Ramones. Um, and then um, John, the bass player, he left. Uh, John was always into more um, uh, prog, uh, intellectual prog sort of stuff. So you know, I didn't blame him for that, and uh, I stayed friends with him. For some time after that, uh, uh, I was I was quite upset that Graham left when he left because we had some really good gigs lined up. I mean, we were playing, we were headlining Dingwalls and headlining the Marquee. Yeah. So all of a sudden, I've got to try and find a drummer to cover these gigs, which was um, you know you, you you spend you spend a lot of time and effort trying to get these gigs, you know, and, and Dingwalls and. And the marquee was was gigs that you know you, you had to go somewhere to get those gigs to be an headliner, and yeah. you, you 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 had to one have something on the go, yeah, and two fulfil it once you got into those venues. You know, you, you know you wanted to come back and play those venues again, so you you, you know you really had to be on your toes, um, and. Uh, as, as well as that, the, the guy that gave us the gig at the um, at Dingwalls was the legendary Boss Goodman, you know, the, uh, the Big Ferris yeah. uh, manager. And, and that to me was, was, was another uh, in, impressive contact. And I, I, I became friends with, with Dave after that. Last time I was seeing him, I think he was, uh, I think he was running a health, he was running a health food. So you can't be. Yeah. <laughs> um, sorry, I've gone off the story. What have we sold it? Uh, we saw about little roosters. Oh yeah. So okay. yeah. So yeah. Um, and I still was under contract with Cliff Cooper for, for the partnership. Right. I think he. I think he let everybody else go in the in the um, in Coxborough. Yeah. Uh, but I, he still had my publishing. Yeah. So. Uh, I was kind of, uh, I wanted to, I wanted to make a fresh break, but I thought, well, you know, Cliff did get us, when we was in Coxbury, he did get us the, um, the Small Faces gig, you know, he did get us with Decker, and, uh, um, yeah, let's, let's have another go with, with, with Cliff. So, um, uh, yeah, the publishing still retained that, 
So I signed another deal with him for, for management. You know, I thought myself, um, you know, I, I can't go any, I can't go anywhere and do anything um, that impressive while somebody else is holding yeah. my publishing. Which you know, I signed in good faith, and it's not Cliff's fault that the band no longer exists. And you know, he had a he had a bona fide claim on the publishing. Should I do anything else? I thought so. Right, let's just 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 keep it all neat and stay on Cliff to do another. Another managerial contract with them as well, so that's how that came about. So, in my memory, I could be wrong. In '82, Cotswold were reformed and did Gary Russell's birthday. I played, and you played at that. I did. That's what I was just about to say. But that was only a one-off gig. Yeah. Which I was happy to do. Yeah. Uh, There's been so many um, questions put to me as why I didn't rejoin with Cotswold. Uh, when they came to me, Steve Burgess came to see me uh, when I was living in Bar, uh, you know, in, in, in Treadigal Road. And we went out and had a few beers and stayed the night. Uh, but I, I just started to get into acting. Now, and yeah. What had happened now is acting had just started to happen for me yeah. and in quite a big way. Um, I was getting some really, really good parts, uh, all, all speaking parts. And I was. I was in I was in the right place at the right time, meeting some very, uh, very powerful people. People, you know, for instance, I, I, I met Harold Pinter, yeah. and I read for Harold Pinter on, on a few occasions. Wow. And uh, Harold would, you know, give me a little envelope with a few bob in it, like you know, thanks for coming over and reading the park. Like he, yeah. he lived in Holland Park, and uh, I remember going over to his house. I was saying to myself, crying with his chef. Wow, yeah, yeah. unbelievable, yeah. Holland Park. Um, yeah. I think it was up in Camden Hill, somewhere like that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I've met also uh, Arnold Wesker um, and um, Bernard Copps, the three, the, the three original working class East End Jewish intellectual writers yeah, yeah. that were all writing about sort of struggle. Yeah. and the working class disposition. Yeah. I met all three of them, you know, one after the other. I met Gillian Diamond, the casting director at the Royal Court, who was also working for Harold Pimsa. I've met Corinne Rodriguez, who was working as the, the, as the top casting director at LWT. And all of a sudden, what I seemed to, um, and, and in some, some ways, well, in a lot of ways, what Coxborough had been denied by the music industry. Um, you know, this kind of, you know, Coxborough kind of sort of, you know, kept at arm's stiff distance, you know, that yeah. sort of, you know, a little bit at the door sh shown a little bit, which was, uh, which was un unkind and unnecessary, really. Uh, but all of a sudden, that arm distancing and that close the door on your face sort of situation, now it was completely reversed. Yeah. People were, were, were calling my agent up and going, oh, I want to see Gary Landon. And sometimes I was I didn't even have to go and audition. They just went, we've heard about Gary, we've seen what he's done. Here's the script. So tell us if he wants to do it. Um, John Bruce, uh, a, a director who was doing a BBC screenplay on BBC Two, they used to have a thing called the BBC Two screenplay. Uh, and it was a play yeah. filmed in a in a TV studio, it, it just sent me, it was a big party, it just sent, sent me the scripts and I just thought myself, crikey, 
um, this is this is how it should have been when we saw in Cox Barracks. You know, this yeah. you know, this this is the kind of sort of um, compliancy yeah. that we was always hoping for. So, uh, for all intents and purposes, that is why I didn't read John Cox Barrow because I could not afford to now take my eye off the ball and off the focus to where I'd got it. Had I been a bit more mature, had I been a bit more confident, I could have done both. I could have done both nowadays. But then, this was like, crikey, I'm, I'm being asked to take penalties every day of the week, and all I've got to do is put the ball in, in, in the net. I'm going to carry on doing that. Yeah. Because the way you got into acting, you, from memory, is a bit of a story because you find yourself with, with some money debts from Little Rooster. Yes. And you needed to find some money. I was in debt. Money. I was in debt from the from the Little Roosters, and I had no solid income whatsoever. And um, I was playing pool in a in a pub down in Whitechapel, and this rather well-spoken lady came over to me. She said, "I've been listening to you. You've got a marvelous." general working class and other accent. Have you ever tried any acting? I went, yeah, at school, I was already in the school place. I was a bit sort of boisterous at school. And this, you know, they used to put me into as much sports as possible, um, you know, and, and the plays to sort of like try and burn off a bit of energy, I suppose. I said, yeah, at school, I, I'd love, love this. I'd like you to read a play called Chicken Soup with Barley. Have you heard of it? I said, no, I don't have no. But that was one of the plays by Arnold Wesker, and I went down and auditioned for that. And that was at the Half Moon Theatre in Stepney, which in those days was a very credible uh, theatre that was supported by the Greater London Council. They always used to get a grant, and they always would be uh, putting on plays there that were like, um, you know, quite thought-provoking plays about sort of like social status and stuff like that. And um, chicken soup with barley certainly fitted that remit and uh, Arnold Wesker came down to see this play the, you know the writer came yeah. down and uh, in the bar after after the press night I was approached by Corin Rodriguez who I've never met before she's introduced so my name's Corin Rodriguez I said hello Corin she's a really enjoyed your performance she said um, I'm, I'm casting director at London Weekend Television and I've got well, oh, hello. <laughs> Again, how are you, Colleen? She went, I'd like to introduce you to someone. Would that be all right? I went, yeah, sure. Uh, when do you want me to come and see you? She went, no, I mean now in the bar. I went, oh, yeah, sure. So she went and got Arnold Wesker. And then all of a sudden, I'm, I'm standing there, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to Arnold Wesker. Arnold Wesker then introduced me um, to some other people. Uh, I then was introduced to um, uh, Gillian Diamond, who was a casting director at the Royal Court, but in particular also working for Harry Peter. Um, and that's that's how I got started in in in, in acting. And uh, you know, I I had um, I like twenty years of, of, of real cutting edge stuff there yeah uh, it you know it it peaked off in the end um and then which is quite typical of me i uh, i then went to drama school <laughs> after all that 
I went, I went and done a Master of Arts degree yeah. in drama school. Um, and I remember walking out this front door and thinking, what, what do you you're doing, Gary? Going to drama school after you've had that career and at your age, would you like to get out of this? And it came to me immediately, uh, I, want an, I want a new agent because my agent had now retired, the one that I was with, yeah. very good agent by the name of um, Jan Evans, her uh, company was Evans and Rice, very good, uh, but she'd retired. Um, so as I walked out this front door on that first day of going down to, um, making my way down to the drama school, I was, I said to an involuntary thought came into my head, you know, well, you know what, what, what are you doing? What would you want out of this? I thought, well, I need a new agent. And I was hoping that that would uh, come about when they'd done the, the end of term showcase in the West End. Yeah. And I'm going to try and get some more acting work. And that's exactly what happened. I'd done the, I'd, I'd done the Master of Arts acting degree. Um, I got, um, got quite a good mark in it. Um, I got a new agent out of it from the showcase. And um, I've, got a, I've got a new part in, in, a, in a new sitcom out of the... Um, the showcase. So in some ways, um, the world of acting was always much more giving to me yeah. than um, than the, the world of music. Was. It, so it, it, is it fair to say when when the acting took off in the eighties, you drifted away from music, or I drifted away from applying myself yeah. to playing in bands. That would be true. And that is why I didn't. Excuse me. Um, sorry about that. That's okay. What was he saying? Oh, oh yeah, so I drifted away from uh, music yeah. in as much as I was not applying myself to being in a band anymore. And that is why I didn't reform with Cox Farrow at the time. But I never drifted away from music in, in my heart. No. In fact, there was a time when um, I was still with Jane Evans while she was still operating at Evans and Rice. And she said, um, look, Gary, you really should decide whether you want to do music or acting. Um, I said, oh, I've decided I want to do acting. She went, well, that's good. She said, because sometimes I worry that you are going to suddenly go off on a tour. I said, no, that's not going to happen. I, I and I said to her, well, there's, um, there's stuff that I turned down already. She went, well, I'm glad to hear that. She said, because it's no good me sitting in this office. Uh, you know, you've got a, you've got, got a name, you've yeah. got a reputation. People know who you are and they like you, but, you know, I just need to verify that if I, you know, put you up for, for tours, theatre tours, you know, you're not suddenly going to turn around and go, I'm doing doing a gig with, with, with some bands, so I'm sure that I won't, I won't be doing that. Well, then you did form a band with the Bermondsey Joyriders. Um, <clears throat> what year was this? Um... I reckon that was around about 2012. Yeah. Uh, we originally, strange thing was, we originally formed in, in California. Okay. Um, there was me and Martin Stacey, who I was at school with, and that's an interesting story because when we moved to Home Church, where I started to first take guitars more seriously, um, my dad came home one day and he said to me, um, you're learning to play guitar with a kid at school called Martin Stacey. I went, uh, yeah, that's right. He went, and he said, did you know Martin Stacey before we moved to Old Church? I went, no. Oh, right. He said, I've known his dad in the docks for the last 15 years. 
his dad was a Martin Stacey's dad was a lighterman. You know, he had the tug. He he, he, yeah. pulled, he pulled, you know, he, he pulled the ships in, 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 in into the dock. Yeah. So that was a that was a bit of synchronicity. Um, and at some point in time, um, I'd got a, I'd got a gigs. I got a gig. I, I was doing a bit of solo guitar now. Yeah. Um, and at some point in time, I was doing a gig supporting the Dirty Strangers from West London. Yeah. Alan Clayton's band. Yeah. Now Alan Clayton's very well connected to the Rolling Stones. And um, at one of these gigs that I supported Alan Clayton's Dirty Strangers was a guy called Pierre de Beauport, who's Keith Richards' um, guitar tech. And after I played, he went, that's pretty good slide guitar playing. He said, and he said I, I love the way that you've taken slide guitar, you've, you've made it into a, a, a structure rather than something that goes over a pre-existing track we've got talked to. Anyway, he invited me out to go and record with Pierre out in uh, uh, Green, what was it, Greenfields, I think it was called, out in, um, out in America, Connecticut, something like that. Um, and what I did was I, I got onto a few people out, out in um, in the states to say that I was coming over, and uh, could they set me up a few little bar gigs, which I did do. I've paid half a dozen bar gigs whilst trying to see Pierre in the hope that that might pay for my ticket, which it just about did. But when I was out there, um, a, a promoter who came to see me who was invited by another promoter, said, you need to put a band together, put a band together, he said, I'll get, get you some proper, proper gigs. So I came back, I got in contact with Martin Stacey, who I'd started playing guitar with, with yeah. you know, and sort with that was the, the lion in the dogs. And Mark, Martin had played bass with Chelsea? No, um, Martin had played guitar for Chelsea. Chelsea. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I said to him, look, I've got a chance of doing some, some gigs out in, out in America. If I put a band together, do you want to come do the bass? He went, yeah. Uh, who should we get as drummer? Now, I said, I'm going to ask Eddie Edwards out the Bike Breakers. Now, Eddie couldn't do it. He said, well, here's a geezer, but we'll do it for him. He lives in uh, Long Beach, California. A good guy called Steve Goodaway. So I phoned, phoned him up on his landline. And he goes, yeah, he said, I'll do it. Great. And he also made some t-shirts for us and he drove us around and that's how he, uh, he said, what's the band going to be called? I said, the Bermondsey Joyrides. He, he went, the Bermondsey what? I went, no, Bermondsey. He said, yeah, that's what I said, Bermondsey. I said, no, Bermondsey. And then I explained to him that, you know, I saw it was graffiti and, uh, and it, it, in Dublin's and it was, you know, this, this gang of lads, you know. Yeah. So that's how that came about, yeah. And uh, we we done we done some good records, uh, the the Bermondsey Joyriders. Yeah. The Bermondsey Joyriders recorded with um, John Sinclair at the MC Five. Yeah. And that's an interesting bit of synchronicity because when we went out, when we and Martin went with Steve Goodall out to America to buy these gigs, each night we went on stage, uh, we announced that we were playing the gig um, in in the spirit and the memory of the great MC5. And a few people go, yeah, yeah, okay, right. And we did that every night, we made that announcement. And when I came home, I went to check, I went to, I went to check my answer phone messages on the landline. 
And there was quite a few because people don't know. But, the, but one of them was from a guy called John John Brett. You know, John Brett. He runs a he runs a poster shop. Okay. Down in Leather Lane in the city. He, yeah, he, yeah, I know the one. He, yeah. he, he does um he does vintage. Yeah. Rock and film posters. Oh, Gary, listen, get down here ASAP with your slide guitar. Um, we've got John Sinclair down here doing his poetry, and he wants an atmospheric slide guitar player behind him. Well, this was just like as far out synchronicity because we've been, we've been, I, I just, it's literally as I walked through the door, I, I thought myself before I could sleep, let's check all my messages. So then, all of a sudden, I've got to go, right, okay, let's get back on the train and get down to level eight and do this gig. And that's how I met John Sinclair. Yeah. And um, I'd always had this idea for um, an album that had narration or dialogue in between each of the tracks. Yeah. I mean, I kind of got the idea a little bit from Ogden's, you know, yeah. with Stanley yeah. Unwin. Yeah, yeah. But that's only one or two or three tracks. Yeah. I, I was thinking of a whole album. And, uh, and, my, and my thoughts behind that was, if the music wasn't there, the narration and the lyrics of the songs would be a continuous dialogue of poetry, yeah. a call and response. So the narration would, would set up the, the, the question and the response would be the lyrics. And I'd had those, I'd had those ideas roughed out. I didn't have the music to it. Yeah. But now, now I, I found somebody appropriate to do that narration. Yeah. That now guided me and inspired me to what sort of music was going to go behind it. Yeah. So then I started to write Noise and Revolution. Yeah. And uh, we got John Sinclair in to do all the tracks. And people say to me now, and I, I look back at it and I think myself, yeah, right. They went, how on earth did you manage to get John Sinclair? Yeah. to commit to that sort of body of work. Because John's a, a real free agent. John, course, yeah. John, does what he, uh, John does what he wants when he wants yeah. and how he wants. He's of a certain age now, and uh, if, he, if he doesn't want to do something, he won't do it, and, and rightly so. But um, he, he committed to that album, and he turned up on time, yeah. he, he, and he was fantastic. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd put the narration down in front of him. He'd just look at it. But you only have to look at it once you have a glance over it, and you just speak it. And I'd sit in the control room looking at that, and I think so. Oh, oh crikey, that's, that's somebody who's been doing that for a long, long time, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's, it's quite impressive to watch him, and his voice was fantastic. Just as an add-on, Gary, yeah. uh, one thing we, uh, that I, we didn't discuss was kind of like the three bands, the main three bands that you were involved with, Cox Power, uh, Little Roosters and Bermuda Joyriders style and fashion was very important so well I think it always is with whatever band um, you, you, you can't see or you're talking about um, I think uh, you 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 see the band before you hear them well I do anyway and that has always been very important to me and I think a lot of people that's important to a lot of people that the um, that the style of the clothing the image of the band um, is um, it, it, in some ways it's as important as as the music yeah you know um, the um, 
the style that, that Cotterstone were um, uh, best known for, I suppose, was that kind of um, football terrace come clockwork arms look. Um, and I, I think that was, um, as I say, I think that came about from when Malcolm McLaren came down and suggested that I should work on the fact that he considered I like a football terrace lad. He, he said, you look like a football terrace lad, you should work on that. Um, so I think that might have been um, part and parcel of the way that came about. Certainly in my mind, uh, I've seen things said, well, Malcolm McLaren uh, has got that sort of uh, perspective. Um, you know, he knows how, he knows how to sort of uh, market things, so that, that, that could be a good way to go. Well, the Little Roosters, totally different. It was like, um, like a much more flamboyant, artistic sort of look. Um, uh, the, the band went through three or four different image changes. And we were, we've done the sort of like um, small faces look. We've done the faces look. We've done the New York Dolls look. Um, and then we had like an amalgamation of all of those three. Um, so, to be honest, I forget what it was, they, you know, they, the little roosters look like they dress in a collection of, um, you know, uh, discarded throwaways from Alcsam, uh, which uh, I didn't quite agree with that, but I, in, in, in a way I, I, I knew what, what that, I think it was a woman that wrote that, was alluding to. And then with the Bermondsey Joyriders, my idea behind the Bermondsey Joyriders was to have something quite cartoon-esque. <clears throat> because um, I always thought that the New York Dolls were a cartoon-esque version of the Rolling Stones. And so the, the, the big sort of cosmic, intergalactic, uh, rubber-round sunglasses, very over the top, the big flared loon um, tartan trousers, all very over the top, the Edwardian frock coats, and the big sideburns and the hats. It was it was deliberately meant to be very theatrical. It's deliberately meant to be very cartoon-esque, and um, deliberately meant to be a bit tongue-in-cheek. I, I think some people didn't understand that and thought, you know, you know, what's all this about? Um, uh, you know, you can't expect everybody to understand what you're doing, and uh, you know, you can't expect everybody to like it. You you just go along with. How you feel at that point in time, and um, you know, and totally believe in it yourself, and, and carry it through. So, yeah, those are, those were the three uh, very distinctive looks that I have been involved with. Uh, you know, the uh, the terrorist situation, the uh, flamboyant thing with the little roosters, and then that cartoon next thing with um, the Bernie Joyriders. Yeah. One thing that I could see in in the the, the three uh, bands that you were involved, uh, certainly from the videos of the first series, uh, you put a lot of energy into when you perform live. I think, um, I think you know, if, if you're playing, if you're playing any form of rock and roll, and, um, you know, people might have a different interpretation of what Cox Sparrow were, but to me they were Certainly, when I was in them, I considered them to be a rock and roll band, first and foremost. Um, 
But then again, I considered the Sex Pistols to be a rock and roll band. I, you know, I, you know, the that to me, the Dams were a punk band. Right. Yeah. You know, they're very fast and furious, like da 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 da. But if you listen to the Sex Pistols, to me, they're like you know, they're like a like groovy rock and roll band to, yeah. to, to me. Yeah, that's what they sound like to me. Uh, so I think that any form of rock and roll does need to have a, a vitality, an energy that's that's young and vibrant. You know, okay, so Burnsy Joy was long in the tooth by then, but I'm, I'm hoping that we um, we came across as having a, a vibrancy and some vitality, and it didn't look like. Um, Three old geezers sort of dressed up in their, you know, the final shape of the dice. Yeah. And we didn't come across like that, you know? No, I don't think it did. Yeah. It did. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? But the, uh, if you were to give any advice to uh, to a young kid or young kids forming forming a band, what would it be? I would say listen to everything. And one of the, one of the things I regret really looking back on, on my career as, as a guitarist and songwriter is um, I, um, I kind of pigeonholed myself a little bit more than what was, was necessary. I was, um, and I think that stemmed from uh, the lack of success with Cox Farah. I think um, because Cox Farah struggled three or four different potential genres, uh, by the time I got in got the little roosters and the bones you drive us together. I was make sure everybody knows what it is that you're playing, you know, don't leave anything open to interpretation. Make sure, you know, what you're selling, you know. What were you selling? You selling oranges? We'll sell oranges then. You selling apples? We'll sell apples. Don't try and sell half and half. Um, but looking back on that now, I think I might be a, a little bit too severe. Uh, and so to answer your question about the advice to younger musicians or guitarists or songwriters, listen to everything, be open to everything, try everything out, you know. It, it, usually, it, it usually works out quicker to experiment. Yeah, this is something I remember that, you know. So like if you've got an idea and some people in, in the band and you're not too sure, you know. From my experience, rather than you know, trying to explain it, rather than arguing about it, why it's not going to work and why you think it is going to work, my advice would be it, it, try it out. It's usually a lot quicker to run through it and then you can go, oh yeah, you're right, it doesn't work, it's rubbish, dump it. Or you see, it does work. Now we can really nail it down and, and, and ex expand the idea more. Um, so that would be some advice, yeah. Don't, don't waste your time arguing. Try the situation out, it works great. If it doesn't, you save yourself a lot of time by trying it out in the first instance. Yeah. It works with a lot of people. It, it didn't really touch upon some of the, the, the people that you have worked with. Yeah. And Mick Jones as well? Uh, Mick Jones, I'm... Uh, I'm I've been asked to do a part in a radio program um, that Mick's involved with. Um, it's a it's a London story uh, about in Soho. Um, I can't really tell you what the plot is because it's 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 quite an interesting plot, and I, I can't really give that away. 
Um, but of course, you know, prior to working with Mick Jones, I worked with Joe Strum, who produced the Little Roosters album, or several tracks on the Little Roosters album. Nick Torber, I think I've already mentioned, great producer, was at Decca. Um, and uh, there was another guy uh, who sadly died, Mike Day. He was a fantastic producer. Um, and he, he, he did an album that um, was going to be the second uh, Little Roosters album, but we'd split up, so that didn't, uh, didn't, didn't get released. Um, but then I've played, I've played guitar, or I've gigged with, I think, probably every major, at least one member of every major punk rock band. Uh, and, um, and that's how he's on drums in, in the Burns and Joy Riders. Yeah. I've recorded with Glenn Matlock. Um, I've recorded with uh, Marble F Generation X. I've recorded with Max Splodge. Funny um, Max. Hmm? Funny Max. He's, uh, he's got some very clever songs. Yeah. And um, in actual fact, that's how I really met Dave Goodman. Uh, Max. Oh, and Daryl Bath were uh, involved with uh, Dave Goodman, and uh, I think if I recall that's how I probably met Dave, because uh, I met him back in the day when he was doing a PA. Uh, but now he had a studio, so he had, he had his own studio yeah. over in, in Gypsy Orchard, a fantastic place, it really was. And Dave was a, a, a great producer, really, really knew himself as a, as a musician and as a producer. And, you know, obviously his name is associated with being the original Sex Pistols producer, but his knowledge of all genres of music was far, far reaching. Um, uh, Dave Tregunner, Sham, I've recorded with him um, over at Anna Clayton's studio. Um, Joe Wobble. Joe Wobble, recorded Joe Wobble, been on tour with Joe Wobble, played guitar on his um, Chinese Dark Tour, I think, which was a. Uh, might have been about 2010. Uh, 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 I'm out and jammed with um, Steve Diggle for a while. I was going to be the bass player in the, uh, in the Buzzcocks at one point in time. But uh, it clashed with some other stuff that I was doing. Again, some acting work. So, <coughs> and the acting work had to come first because it, it was big money. Um, and. Uh, I enjoyed the uh, first couple of days with Steve. Um, he's, he's got something that I've always admired in, in the fusion of a punk mod crossover. Yeah. I, 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 I like that. Um, um, there's, there's probably some others I can't think of. Either the two of the business. I played guitar for uh, Mickey Fitz. Yeah. Yeah, well done. That's research. <laughs> no, More than what I've done. I mean, you told me, so, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, who, who else is there? Um, oh, Eddie Edwards, the vibrators. He, he was in the Burnsy Joyriders for a while. He's still in when we was, you know. The thing about Burnsy Joyriders, we never really had an established drama. Uh, there was always sort of coming in and, um, and then going, and then coming back, and then going. So there's a bit of a... Bit of a rotation of drums in the Burnsy Joyride. Yeah. Thank you.